Hey, Brown Girls, it's Ashanti, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, we're tackling a topic that affects all of us. We're seeing it in the supermarket, the gas station, and especially in the housing market. The cost of living has gone up while many Americans' paychecks remain the same. That's right, we're talking about the economy. I'm so excited to speak to an expert on economic security in communities of color, Hope Wallensek, Executive Director of the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund. She found her footing in the economic sphere after working as an educator and just living as a woman of color in Louisiana. She saw that it wasn't individual choices that decided people's success, but the structural obstacles and resources available to them. We're talking about economics as it's meant to be discussed, a basic pillar of the civil rights movement. But first, I wanna chat about another issue that's affecting a lot of people's ability to make independent economic decisions, student loans. BGG producer, Brittany Martinez, is here to chat it through. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Ashanti. On August 24th, the Biden-Harris White House announced a three-part plan to forgive student debt for low- to middle-income borrowers. That means the Department of Education is providing up to $20,000 in debt cancellation to Pell Grant recipients and up to $10,000 to non-Pell Grant recipients. Borrowers are eligible for the program as long as their individual income is less than $125,000, which is a lot of Americans. It's no secret that college is often unattainably expensive for a lot of families. According to the White House, the total cost of a four-year college has nearly tripled, even when accounting for inflation. And that's for both public and private schools. The program that used to help cover these costs haven't kept up. Pell Grants used to cover nearly 80% of the cost of a four-year tuition. Now it covers a third. When we're talking about the role economic independence plays in opening the door for people, this was a huge step forward. What was your reaction to hearing that student debt cancellation was finally happening? So I was really excited, and I'm not going to get into the whole debate of it should be more. It's the fact that it was done, and I saw the positive reaction to this in my own family. My sister-in-law texted me, and she said, Shawnee, is it true? Is this really happening? And I said, yeah. And we texted back and forth about her eligibility, and she said, I'm now officially debt-free. This is going to change so much for us. And for someone who I didn't know, but it got a strong reaction on Twitter, is a young mom with twins talked about how the student debt relief was going to lower her debt-to-income ratio and allow for her to finally buy a home. Regardless of if we want a bigger amount, this is big. This is making a positive impact in people's lives. And it just goes to how we also think about money, that people are like, oh, that's such a small amount. That isn't going to do anything. No, $500, $1,000, $10,000, it is life-changing for the majority of Americans. And we have to talk about the fact why Americans have student loan debt 
is because we went to college and did what we were told we needed to do to be successful Americans. That you graduate high school, you go to college, you get your degree, you get a good job. So I also don't like the fact that we did what our country told us to do is now seen as a negative. Like, oh my gosh, you did this and now you can't afford to pay the debt. Not all of us come from families where you get to go to college debt-free and you have someone to open the door for you where you get that immediately high-paying job mm -hmm. to help you make six figures. And that $125,000, that's a lot. The majority of Americans are not in that income tax bracket. So this is something extremely exciting that has happened Kudos to the Biden-Harris administration and kudos to everyone who pushed for this because this is what happens when you make your voice heard. This was something that could not be ignored anymore that people wanted student debt relief. And now we have it. Student debt forgiveness is huge, but still there's farther to go here. Your typical graduate has $25,000 in debt. And if history shows us anything, the prices are not going down anytime soon. What do you hope might be the next step for the government in terms of debt forgiveness and economic support for communities in need? There is definitely still more we can do, but Biden-Harris can only do so much as president and vice president. So this is another piece of it when people are like, more, more, give us more. They can only do so much. We really need an act of Congress if we're really going to make this go further, which means we need for certain people to be elected to Congress and have control of Congress and to help enact more policies that are going to help us. And our long-term BGG listeners, you've heard me say this so many times, it's why we have this show that we need elected officials who care about this issue and who want to act on this issue. So it can't be the White House alone. We do need other elected officials who are going to make this happen. But in reality, I want to see our country move to where college is free, where education is free. When it comes to things such as healthcare, paid family leave, education, other countries are able to do this just fine with providing it for their citizens. We as a democracy, this should be a basic pillar of what we're able to provide our citizens if we want to have a strong democracy. So I would love to get to a place where we're not even talking about college debt because it's free to go to college. Yeah, that is the dream. And just because I have student debt doesn't mean I don't wish that for people in the future because the only way we can get better as a country is if we're supporting our future people. Absolutely. Thanks, Ashanti. Thanks, Brittany. You can hear more about the state of the U.S. economy in my conversation with Hope Wallensack. All right, brown girls. Today, we are talking about that old mighty dollar. And we have a great guest with us, Hope Wallensack. And we're going to talk about some of the economic needs of women of color. Hope, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Very glad to be here. So before we get into the questions, just tell the listeners a little bit about 
how you got into this work and what made you want to focus on it? Yeah. So I started my career as a teacher and assistant principal in New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, had been for a while in college and in my time in New Orleans, like an organizer activist. And what I really saw was that we had so many structures that stood in the way for people having opportunity and success. And in particular, like structural racism stood in the way from these 10 year old kids who I was working with every day from achieving the things and having the choices that they really deserved in life. And many of these things were set in this path hundreds of years before these kids were even born, but that we continue to perpetuate policies that really reinforce the idea that individual choices primarily determine outcomes versus systems and structures and resources. So I really wanted to think about what are the root causes that result in racial inequity and in particular resources like finances and how much income one has play a huge role that really helps to get to the root of some of the issues. So really my experiences really propelled me towards what can we get that's really a root cause of the ways that we see um, systemic inequality manifest today. Yeah. Oh, everything that you said, I can totally relate to. And I want to get into our conversation. I'm actually out here in Georgia as well for the Power Rising Conference. Our longtime listeners, you all have heard of Power Rising. I'm on the board. And the Bishop Leah Daughtry, our main co-convener, just opened up the first plenary session. And one of the things that she said is when it comes to Black women, when it comes to women of color, sometimes we have more month than money. And we also just had Black Women's Equal Pay Day. And I actually got someone messaging me on Instagram because I shared a graphic about it. And they said, this seems to just be getting later and later and later. And I'm like, it is. That is a fact. So let's just start by talking about what is a UBI, a universal basic income and guaranteed income? These are things that we have heard out in the political ethos for years. We see lots of cities and states experimenting with it. So tell us, what are we talking about? What are our leaders talking about when they say UBI slash guaranteed income? So by guaranteed income, we mean no strings attached cash payments to communities and folks who are most in need, usually with an income threshold. This is in contrast to a universal basic income that is provided to everyone, usually regardless of income. So really with our program and our focus on Black women, it's because we know Black women face some of the harshest economic realities in our economy that just isn't working for far too many people, but Black women oftentimes are facing the harshest and sharpest impacts of that. So everything from making 58 cents on the dollar the wage gaps have grown over the pandemic. There were commitments to racial justice just two years ago, and somehow many of the issues have been exacerbated, not closed. And so really our commitment in this program is not only just to provide sort of a cash support that's universally distributed, but to think about sort of who are the people who have been pushed to the farthest margins of our society and economy, and how do we build policy with starting with those folks first. So a guaranteed income, too, is something that Dr. King talked about uh, mm-hmm. just about 60 years ago in his final book, Chaos or Community. 
And in it, he talks about it as the simplest approach Mm -hmm. to solve poverty. So it's really important to us in that legacy of um, sort of Black activism to continue with the the guaranteed income approach and with sort of that terminology as well. They're very similar proposals, but different in some ways on sort of who and how much and, and sort of what the target and focus would be. And you just really tied it all together because we know that the 1965 March on Washington was also about jobs. Most people just really equate it to voting rights, voting protection, but it was also jobs in the Black community and having Black people get equal pay. So as we know, Dr. King was a leader on this in so many fronts, but even in the 1960s today, we still have people who are against this. So let's dive into what are some of the benefits to giving people a guaranteed income? What does it do? Yeah, I mean, there've been studies after studies. There's about 300 studies uh, globally on the power of no strings attached cash. And what we know is that it unequivocally improves a range of outcomes, of course. Cash is a necessary prerequisite to function in our economy, our society, to have choices, agency, self-determination. And so I really think about what the absence of sort of financial stability means. It often means that you are facing a poverty tax. You actually pay more for goods and services because you don't have enough money. You might end up living in a place you don't have the choice to live where you want to or live in a place that feels secure for you and your kids. You may not be able to access healthcare immediately. And so you end up spending more in the long run to only have worse outcomes when it comes to healthcare. And so certainly at its foundation, economic security really provides the choice and agency to self-determine and imagine that sort of across the community. So we know that it's not just individuals who are cash strapped in Black communities. It has ripple effects because it's not just us. It's our neighbor, it's our sister, mm-hmm. it's it's intergenerational and it spans across our communities. And so what we've seen study after study has shown is that it improves a range of outcomes from health outcomes, mental, mental health and physical health outcomes to generally employment opportunities and rates to sort of sense of choice and agency over one's future. Also oftentimes outcomes related to kids because if mom mm-hmm. and parents are feeling, have a little bit more cash, they can buy those school supplies, they can get those those school clothes that are really needed. And so there have been a lot of studies on this globally. And I think more recently, the child tax credit and the stimulus checks really show the power of sort of unconditional cash payments and that we're continuing to grow on that body of literature to understand what exact impact it can have. Mm-hmm. And when you talked about the agency of choice, I think that's so important to dive into because right now we are seeing a lot of environmental things happening with Puerto Rico. We see that when Texas floods, when they deal with their electrical issues, so many people just say, well, why don't they move? Why do they live there? They know all of this is happening. And I was having a very interesting conversation with someone a few weeks ago where they just said, People who want to be like Trump should go to one part of the country. And those of us who don't want to be like Trump should go to another part of the country. And I said, not everyone has the ability to just up and move. 
And they just said, everyone can do it. Like I lived here, then I went and moved there. Everyone can do it. And I said, not everyone has that privilege. Not everyone has that form of money. And we just really got into a deep argument about it. So I feel like she would be someone who is also skeptical of the fact that we need to do this because everyone just has these opportunities, which they don't have. This person was clearly very much coming from a place of privilege. So what do you have to say? How do you respond to the critics of your work? Yeah, First, I think like embedded in that too is like what, how our democracy actually lives in practice. And I think this is mm-hmm. an earlier point that that you were making about Dr. King, the March on Washington was a march for jobs as well. And so that really our democratic and civic rights are hollow if we don't have a bedrock of economic security and if we don't have some form of economic rights. This is something Derek Hamilton at the New School often talks about um, and that Dr. King himself spoke about. But essentially, how do people truly have choice, agency, and in self-determination if they are trapped by their economic circumstances and there are Mm. no viable, there are very few or no viable avenues out of that? Not only as a practical matter to like, how do I get to vote, but like, how do I live my life in a way where I have agency and choice if I don't have sort of the economic sort of tools, if I don't have the economic sort of buffer in order to do that. It's really sort of at that point, choice is a fallacy. So really what we view this program as, one of the primary purposes is choice and agency. I think we care a lot about some of those other outcomes. Again, health, family relationships, outcomes related to children, outcomes related to civic engagement. We care a lot about many uh, job outcomes, income outcomes, savings and wealth building, the ability to maybe close the racial wealth gap to the extent to which a program like this might do that. At its core, this program is designed to give folks a little bit more breathing room who that has been removed for far too long and to really provide just a little bit greater choice and agency, even if, you know, hopefully over the two-year period, but also hopefully into the future beyond the duration of the program. So I think to the critics, a lot of times we hear a lot of things like, how will they spend the money? And we know that that concept (laughs) of how will they spend the money is deeply rooted in the myth of the welfare queen and Uh the idea that in particular Black women who are experiencing poverty misuse funds and that they sort of don't know what's best for themselves. What we know and what evidence also shows is that people know what's best for themselves and for their families. They oftentimes don't have the tools and resources to do it And they're very limited in their choices oftentimes. But given the choices that they have and the resources available, people experiencing poverty make very reasonable choices um, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes can outperform peers at higher income levels given the choices that they have. So uh, Aisha Nyandoro out of Jackson, Mississippi, talks a lot about, you know, women in, she runs a guaranteed income program. Women in that community, you know, the price of milk at like three different grocery (laughs) stores. Very similarly here, when we talk to, to women, they know, especially in these over these past few months, know the price of chicken, eggs, gas at like multiple grocery stores are very familiar with flipping coupons, know all of the strategies to budget and save and know how to spend really prudently for their family. Just 58 cents on the dollar compared to white men, it is not going to add up. And so how do we give these folks more breathing room and at the same time, dispel those deeply embedded racist and gendered tropes that have for too long driven public policy 
in a way that is very punitive, where people are not only provided only a very minimal amount of support, and where really it becomes stigmatized, despite all the systemic factors that create these inequities, becomes really stigmatized to access sort of like public benefits or any type of social mm-hmm. support. So really that is what we think about, and it directly comes from that main criticism, you know, how will they spend the money, which at its core is deeply embedded in a lot of history around how social and public policy has been made. Yep. And we know with everything that's currently happening in Mississippi, it wasn't them who improperly spent money. It was the leaders and their state government. And I just know we have so many listeners who are intrigued right now and would like to know, okay, if I want to see something like this implemented in my city and my state, how do you go about designing it? So what were some of the first steps that you all took to develop this fabulous, effective program? Yeah, this program really started by talking to women in the Old Fourth Ward community of Atlanta. So for those who may not be familiar, the Old Fourth Ward is in the center of the city of Atlanta, geographically in the center, in many ways is a microcosm of the city. It's where Dr. King was born and where he pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's where he and Coretta are buried today. Yet blocks away is the largest concentration of Section 8 housing in the Southeast. And just blocks away from that is some of the biggest development in the city of Atlanta that generates millions, if not tens of millions of dollars for the city and state. And so we really have this inequality strictly along racial lines in the shadow of Dr. King's legacy, charging us with sort of like, who will we be and what will we do about it? And I'm sure as I describe this neighborhood, there are people across the country who are like, aspects of that sound like this other neighborhood I know. This is not Mm -hmm. a trend that just lives here. We know it's pervasive across the country. So Mm -hmm. really in in 2020, uh, a city council member here in Atlanta, Amir Faroqui, convened a task force. And um, we started talking to folks in the community, especially women, about sort of their ambitions and their goals. So often we talk about the deficits in communities. We want to ask people like, what do you want to see in your community? What would help get you there? Let's be like aspirational in this. And what we really found was that we heard a lot of different responses, but what we really found was that cash in particular would have a powerful impact on a number of outcomes. And just so often it was really difficult to get to the next level because people were struggling to meet their basic needs on a day-to-day basis. The Mm -hmm. average participant in our program from the old fourth ward neighborhood of Atlanta makes $14,000 a year. It is really difficult to just kind of navigate the inevitable ups and downs of life Mm -hmm. if you're making $14,000 a year. And they felt really trapped. They said, if you know, if I made a little bit more money, my public benefits would be reduced and that would feel more insecure. I would need huge jumps in my income in order mm-hmm. to like truly feel secure. And so this is how we started talking. Okay, is that about $800 a month? And for how long would you really need to have that? And so we really listened to the women in the community when they talked about how much, how long. I'm super proud that our program provides over two years. So for some folks, that's going to double their income. The duration of the program is a bit longer than other guaranteed income programs in the country. And that makes sense because we're focused on Black women and we know Black women are experiencing sort of higher structural barriers. So really listening to community members in the design of the program and what would be most helpful to them. We also in our program have a two cohort payment model. So what that means is when people are selected for the program, 
they're either in group A or group B randomly. Group A receives $850 a month for the two years, and group B receives a lump sum upfront. They receive $4,300 in that first month, and then $700 a month for the remaining months. We got that from a woman in a, the listening session who was like, $800 a month would be great, but I would spend several months just getting my head above water. Okay, well, what can we do to just, we can just, we can put a lump sum up front. Like these are things that are possible if we're just listening to folks in communities. Not only can we develop better solutions that are grasping at the root a lot better, but then as we're like executing those solutions, they can be designed in ways that have a greater impact. And so we're hoping to learn from that sort of payment design model. We're one of the few, if only guaranteed income programs in the country, having this sort of like two cohort design. And these ideas did not come from me. They came largely from sort of the community and being in conversation with one another, which I think is sort of like the building blocks for how you do this work. And that's so key because one of the biggest complaints that we hear from black and brown people is these groups will pop up in the community to support them, but never listen to them or never ask their advice and what they need. So I'm not surprised that you all came up with amazing solutions because these are what the women need and you don't have to name names, but is there a success story that you're already seeing that you would like to share? Yeah, I think one of the biggest successes, our program just launched in May in the Old Mm -hmm. Fourth Ward. And then we've been rolling out across our two other sites. And I'm proud to say we've just launched our our final cohort in College Park. So our program- Yay, applause track. Yay. (laughs) We've just launched the three cohorts, which is the Old Fourth Ward neighborhood of Atlanta. We have a cohort in Southwest Georgia, which is a rural part of the state. And then in College Park, uh, Georgia as well, which is a suburban area. So very intentional on spanning three geographies and seeing sort of what we can learn about the experiences of Black women and the impact of guaranteed income across diverse settings. But I'll say one of the biggest things that that stood out to me from our baseline findings is the increase in optimism. So folks were asked how, how optimistic they felt about their life now and how sort of optimistic they felt about their five year prospects. And folks reported um, about a five on how they felt about sort of their optimism about their life now. And then when asked about their five-year prospects, it was 8.59. So Mm. really just this idea that like good things can happen in our communities. I think it can be really heavy sometimes. The, The number of bad things that we're both sort of socialized to believe about, about Black communities and the number of sort of like events hard events that happen in our communities can sometimes just be really heavy. And so like, what can a program like this, I think sometimes for for a lot of folks in the community has felt like a little bit of a breath of fresh air. And I know for the individuals in the program, they're really excited for where they're going to go over the next two years. And we hope that also has ripple effects on the surrounding community. And there's a good amount of research around that. But we're a nonprofit organization, but maybe the ways in which like government ways in which society, the economy can work for Black women for once, you Mm -hmm. know, I think like that is what's been most inspiring to see so far. And I'm excited to see sort of what the outcomes will be over the next two years and so many individual stories that have been incredibly powerful. Mm, I love that. To go from a five to an eight and 8.5, that's a nice jump. 
So you all are just getting started. What are some of your hopes and aspirations for the future of your program and other potential programs? And this season is about the midterms, the way that our elected leaders and our government can be more supportive of programs like this. Yeah, our goals are really twofold. One is to increase the economic security of the 653 women who are enrolled in our program across the three sites. Um, if it provides, again, some breathing room, some greater choice for them, that's a win for us. We care about some of those other outcomes as well, but starting there is, is a great starting point. The second really hope for this program is that it impacts the public policy conversation on what a just and inclusive society and economy can look like that works for everyone and how we really start by, in that conversation begins by focusing on those who've been pushed to the margins. And in, in the case mm -hmm. of our economic system, that is most certainly black women and built on sort of the exploitation and undervaluing of black women's labor and contributions. And so we would love to see sort of how this can impact all types of policy conversations from the design of our social safety net to how we think about policies that can be focused on specific communities. We know we have the data that shows that these gaps exist, and yet it can be very difficult to focus on very specific communities. And also, when oftentimes when there are resources, we're the last to get them, and we kind of get what's mm -hmm. left over if there's any left over. You know, there there is sort of there are resources out there; they're just very rarely funneled to our communities. And so, like, how can we sort of switch that? Yeah, how, how can we change that? And then finally, what we'd love to see is changing the traditional paradigm of policymaking, sort of inverting that power structure where people at the top who are in sort of positions of traditional power have all of the answers for people who have these lived experiences in communities. What can we do to ensure that those who have lived experience are at the policymaking table and are helping to push big, bold ideas. Um, if what we were doing already was working, we would see these gaps closing, but we see them widening, especially sort of racial wealth and, and income gaps. We generally see them widening. And so what can we do that's big, bold, and to sort of show that like these ideas are possible, we just sort of have to have the will and commitment to do them, and the resources will certainly be there. So that's some of the goals of the program and what we hope to see over the next two years. Awesome. For our listeners who would like to support your work, who would like to know more about guaranteed income and the programs that exist or could exist, what advice do you have for them who want to support amazing work like what you're doing? Yes. If you would like to learn more about our work, please visit our website at thegrofund.org. So that's thegrofund.org. Or you can visit us on Twitter, Instagram, The Grow Fund. Awesome. Hope you are doing amazing work as always. Thank you for your dedication to uplifting women of color, especially Black women. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Today, we are going on the scene with Shanquetta Cunningham, who tells us about her work with Karis Group a nonprofit consulting firm and her nonprofit, Over a Cup, which connects Black women entrepreneurs all over the South. She tells us why it's so important to create networks of support for the causes that matter to you the most and how to continue that support 
at the ballot box. My name is Shanquetta Cunningham. I reside here in Arkansas, the great state of Arkansas, where my daytime job is to disrupt narratives about nonprofits and nonprofit success. And I do that through my company, Caris Group Consulting, where we teach nonprofits how to position their organization for a greater financial increase, social impact, and high-level influence. I took the leap of entrepreneurship nearly seven years ago. It quickly morphed into holistic consulting that support nonprofits under the umbrella of Paris and being a CEO, but happened to be a Black woman CEO, I recognized how there are very few of us, especially in my area. And I would have to travel to Little Rock or other parts of the state to get that community. Overcup is the only nonprofit group started in the state of Arkansas that exclusively targets Black women entrepreneurs. I started Overcup January 2018 to bring what I was missing. It really started as a safe place to connect and to network and to share resources with the local Black women entrepreneurs. And since January 2018, that's been the impetus and the nexus of how we do community together intentionally, not excluding ourselves from the larger corporate space, but having that intentional space to network and collaborate. While it was just for us to get together every fourth Saturday, at a coffee shop, hence over a cup, <laughs> and at early in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning to gather. But now the friendships, the business collaborations, the connections, and we're doing life together. I did not imagine that. It was very simple in its early stages, connect, collaborate, support. And now we have these legs that have extended with people doing businesses together in various things. And so I am just so excited for this next phase as we've officially incorporated as a nonprofit now. Of course, I support candidates that has interest and platforms that align with Black women entrepreneurship, economic development, educational uh, support. And so you have to be able to support candidates through a medium. And I think that's where Act Blue comes in, that no matter the dollar amount, I often tell people that your $5, your $10 is just as significant as a $5,000 donation. And if we all have the mindset that it's not just me, it's not just my $5, but it's my $5. And that's collaborated with a million other people and their $5. That's how you make the change. And I think we probably have to start ensuring that we share those messages, that there is no least level of impact. Everything is impact and makes a difference. Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. AdBlue's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At adblue.com slash directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to actblue.com slash directory to take action today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. 
please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network, and you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Check out our next episode where we will talk with Erica Buchanan Rivera, Washington Township's Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer. Until next time, Brown Girls.